You know that it wouldn't be a Sunday morning with me if there wasn't a little bit of drama. I already shared with Matt a little bit about what happened this morning. So you guys know that on any given Sunday when it's my responsibility, oh, I may leave my notes in the printer at home. Um, well, last year, I think I came in one time with notes printed on the back of a mortgage statement because we didn't have any paper. And you would think that I would learn to print notes on Friday or Saturday night, but for some reason, I'm too dense to learn that, and I print on Sunday mornings. This morning was no different. This morning, I printed notes, went down to the printer, and this is what came out. Only read, which is pretty much the scripture references in Jesus' words. Now, I prayed about it, and I said, Lord, you want me to just go with that? And he said, you're not that good. <laughs> no, it gets worse. So I come upstairs to the print expert, the technology expert in our house, the IT, and I look at her and I said, hey, do we have any black cartridges? She said, probably, down in the drawer. She told me where they were and everything. I said, I looked at her, I go, can you help me? Now, I go down there and I'm like working on this thing and I don't know where they go in or anything like that. And I was like, all right, I don't have time for this. I'm just going to go downtown real quick to the office, print them off, and then drive separately and come here. And all I can assume is that when I looked at her and said, can you help me? She must have thought I was just praying to the Lord. Lord, can you help me? That's all. I don't know. So, <laughs> so this morning, I do have some notes, okay? I want to talk a little bit about irony. Um, as you guys know, we've been in the book of Acts. And I feel like we've seen a lot of irony. And what I mean by that is we have seen things happening to our characters, to Paul and Peter and James and John. And we know what God has said to them, and we see them probably anticipating these things playing out in a certain way, right? We all do that in our own lives. We read the promises of God, we understand his covenants, and we look at those things that he has said to us, and we go, this is going to play out this way in my life. And how many of you have had situations in your life where God did not show up that way? He worked out the situation in your life completely different than what you had assumed and what you thought in the flesh, right? And so in our last message on Acts, I think Michael shared that Luke wrote when they were on that ship that they had actually abandoned all hope of being saved. When those waves and those storms were coming, it got so bad that in the natural, in the flesh viewing things through a worldly lens, Luke said, this is it. There's no hope. But God had a different plan for them. Think about when Paul really, really wanted to go to Rome, and he wanted to go to Rome so bad so he could share the gospel message. And God said, Paul, I guarantee you, you are going to go to Rome. Well, he might have thought it would have happened in the conventional sense, in the same way that he traveled to all the other churches, Right? but we know that's not true. God is going to take Paul to Rome, but it won't happen in the way that he might have thought. And so I've been thinking about the events of the cross, and I've been thinking about the irony that we have seen in Acts. And we see a lot of irony as it pertains to the events of the cross, don't we? And so I thought we would take some time to look at those this morning. Not every single last piece of irony surrounding the cross, because that would take too much time. That would be impossible to do. 
but a few events we might be able to look at. And lest we think that to say that God is ironic would be blasphemous or um, heretical, let me read a definition of irony to you. A state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to one expects. A state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects. That's it. That's a definition of irony. I believe we see in God's word periodically events that don't play out and end up the way we as humans expect. And so as we begin, we're not actually going to start at the cross. I'm going to go way back to the beginning for a moment. Way back to the garden. So open up the Genesis chapter 2 with me if you would. And you're going to get a Bible workout this morning a little bit. Just kind of putting you on notice. Genesis chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17. These are some references that many of you know by heart anyway. But we'll read them nevertheless. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. This was the instruction, right? These were the terms. This was the agreement. You can have all of this fruit, all of it. That one over there is mine. Everything else, feel free, partake. That one is reserved for me, the Lord says. Pretty basic, right? Pretty clear. Pretty simple. Turn to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Hmm. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, wait, or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. Right? Yeah, that's not the character of God. God would not do that to you, would he? For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when women saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, there is so much here that I do not intend to unpack this morning. But I simply want to highlight maybe three tactics, if you will, that Satan used. The first is that he attacks what God has already said. Did you notice that he said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, Shouldn't Eve have responded and said, oh no, 
we get all of these. Look at how good God is. God is so awesome that he gives us all of this stuff and we have no want. We do not need for anything. He is our great provider. We're completely satisfied. Wouldn't that have been an appropriate response? But that's not what she says. Tactic number two that Satan employs. He appeals to human logic of the circumstances. He appeals to human logic of the circumstances. You know what he says? He says, well, you won't surely die. Right? Let's be logical about this. Let's, let's be practical and look at this through a worldly human lens. You're not really going to die, are you? God loves you too much for that. We do the same today, don't we? Don't we sometimes suspend maybe what God has said and we analyze something through carnal, natural, worldly eyes and we just say, well, logically, this has got to be true and logically, this is what's going to happen. Tactic number three Satan uses. I would say that he exploits the desires of the flesh. He exploits the desires of the flesh. You notice what he says to Eve? Your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God and you'll be as wise as he is. Ooh, this is a good one, isn't it? Be like God? That sounds so good. Boy, that really resonates right here in my heart and even in my mind. I, I, I think that sounds like a good thing. Let's go grab some fruit. And so we see in verse 6 that Satan's tactics worked, didn't they? Eve concedes that the fruit would be good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. And it was desirable for wisdom. And so briefly, we'll just say that sin convinces us that what God has said is negotiable. And it isn't, is it? Sin convinces us that what we see with our carnal eyes is all that is real. Sin will tell you, yeah, what you, what you see in, in the natural, with your natural eyes, that's it, that's real, there's nothing else. But we know that's not true. The Bible says that our battle is against flesh and blood. There is a whole other realm that we live in. Sin convinces us that we are wise in our own rights and that we can serve as our own God. That was the final twist. You can become wise, you can be like God, and you can become your own God. And that's what sin whispers to us, each and every one of us, in our hearts. That we can be independent, that we're qualified to make our own decisions, and that what God has already said is negotiable. And so, at its root, sin, when we sin, what we have done is we have made a decision that God's provision is no longer enough. When we choose to sin, we have made a decision that God's provision for us is not sufficient. And so I said that I wanted to talk about irony this morning. Well, the irony in the garden so far is that uh, the fruit brought a physical and a spiritual death. Wasn't the irony that Satan was playing upon that God wouldn't surely drop you dead there on the spot, right? He wouldn't do that. And oh, how ironic the results were. They didn't drop dead right there on the spot, did they? 
their physical death was prolonged. It was temporarily suspended. It was delayed. But they did die a physical death eventually. You and I, because of being born into sin, will die a physical death. But you know what did happen instantly? As soon as they partook of that fruit, they were spiritually dead. And so the irony is, no, they didn't drop dead right there on the spot, but they did die spiritually. They did create a breach and a chasm between themselves and their holy creator. A chasm that is irreparable in the flesh. A chasm that no human could bridge. And as Dave has shared with us on a number of occasions, one of his favorite statements in the Bible is, but God. A chasm that you and I cannot bridge. Adam and Eve could not bridge. Nobody could bridge but God. And so the circumstances through which sin entered the world didn't look like Adam and Eve had expected, did they? And I would say this, that the cure for sin doesn't appear like anything that humanity would expect. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. In the same way that the way sin came into the world was ironic and didn't play out anything like Adam and Eve had expected, God's eradication of sin, God's cure for the curse that is death, doesn't look anything like humanity would assume. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. You guys know Romans 5, 18 and 19. Just as sin entered the world through one man's trespass against God, one act of righteousness brought justification and life for all men. And so I would say that just as sin entered the world in an ironic way, sin is also defeated in an ironic way. While it came through one man for all, it was one man's righteous act of justification that saves all. Turn with me to John chapter 11. So I mentioned that we're just going to consider a few instances of many surrounding the cross. And I've kind of broken them down into a couple of categories. And the first will just be a prophetic irony. Uh, John chapter 11. We'll look at a, a prophetic irony for a moment. Chapter 11 verses 45 to 53. John writes this. He says, Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? What are we doing with this Jesus fellow? How are we going to combat what the masses and what the crowds are witnessing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Watch this. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. 
Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Are you seeing the irony? And not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one, the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Verse 48 says that if Jesus continues going on performing miracles, that these people are going to believe in him. Yes. That's incredibly ironic. That's the point of Jesus' miracles. Jesus performed miracles to validate and confirm his divinity. Right? When he says, I am, I am the Son of God, he demonstrates that he is. They confirmed his divinity. So yes, if he goes on continuing doing miracles, many people are going to believe. And in verses 50 to 51, Caiaphas says, It is better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation should perish. Exactly! Isn't that what happens? Does not our Savior die as one man on a cross to save the masses? Caiaphas' prophecy is spot on, but his interpretation and his understanding is completely flawed. And notice that it says that one man's death will unify the nation of Israel and bring all peoples into unity under one. Is that not what Jesus' death and resurrection does for all of humanity? We've seen that in the book of Acts, that the gospel was made first available to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That as Gentiles, as non-Orthodox Jews, you and I are grafted into the body of Christ. We are grafted into oneness, into unity, and God has called all of us his people. Caiaphas' prophecy is spot on, and yet the irony is that Jesus dies even for him. He dies to bring all under one, but not in the way that Caiaphas and his fellow opponents thought. How ironic. The second category, if you will. So that was the prophetic irony. A second category would be, how about the royal irony? How about if we look at how the Romans and Jews reject God's chosen king? Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 19. You see, what we'll see here in John chapter 19 is how the Jews wanted a king who would liberate them from Rome. We've talked about that. Michael shared last week, as Jesus entered into the city, many had expected him to liberate the nation of Israel from the heavy hand of Rome. And we know what Israel and its leaders were always frustrated by and what they were always contending with. They were contending with the heavy, the heavy hand of Caesar, right? We would love to get out from underneath Caesar's leadership. We do not like Caesar. We hate 
Caesar. And we don't even like paying taxes to Caesar. That was a constant dilemma, a constant contending in their own hearts. That was a means by which they would constantly try to trip up Jesus, right? How many times did they come to him and say, hey, Rabbi, we know you're a pretty good teacher. Um, You know, we're going to try and trip you up. They didn't say that, but what do you say about taxes? They hated paying taxes. But what we'll see here is that when it's convenient and when it's ironic, they'll praise Caesar if celebrating Caesar as king serves their earthly motives, oh, he's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. How ironic, right? Um, look at verse 1. Look what the Romans did. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. This right here is a mockery, and it's irony in its own sense. They give him a purple robe, which you know that purple is the color of royalty. They give him a crown of thorns and completely mock the rightful king. And jump down to verse 10. Pilate, therefore, said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And watch what Jesus' response is. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And for this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. I think, in Scripture, this might be one of the most ironic moments that we see. Jesus is standing there before Pilate. And Pilate says to the creator of the universe, Do you not know the power that I have over you? (laughs) Do you not know that I have the power, the authority, the ability to set you free or to crucify you. And Jesus' response is, you're kidding, right? I'm going to paraphrase. This is worse than the message version of the Bible. You're kidding. Do you not know that the only power and authority that you have, even over me, has been given to you by me, by my Father in heaven? How ironic is that? That Jesus will willingly go to the cross at the hands of one with whom he empowered with the authority and the discretion to send him to the cross. You know, one of our favorite movies, our family, is the movie uh, Bedtime Stories. Has anybody seen Bedtime Stories with Adam Sandler? It is a cute, it's a fun movie. And one of the, the general premise that takes place through this movie is that as Adam Sandler's character is saying goodnight and caring for his niece and nephew and sharing bedtime stories with them, he will author and create his own bedtime story, and they will contribute to it. And what eventually happens through the course of the movie is that the parts that they contribute, even the crazy, wild stuff, ends up coming true in his life the next day. 
But the catch is, it doesn't come true necessarily in the way that he thinks it will. And so the movie chronicles him trying to discern and decipher, okay, last night they said this, this, and this. How is that going to play out in life today? Because it all came true. But it does not come true in any of the instances in the way that he thought it would. And the movie culminates sort of at the end, this climax, with you know, one of the, the nephew at the night before saying, um, you're going to catch on fire. And so the next day, he's paranoid of catching fire. Anytime you know, a flame, a candle, anything comes close to him or near him, he's just paranoid that he's going to catch on fire. And the end result ultimately is that his boss fires him from his job. And he realizes, oh, that's how this happens. That's how this plays out. We're going to see that also with the the disciples here in a second. My, My dad had to live in Spain, in Madrid, for a couple of years when he was, I think, uh, maybe 11, 12, 13. My grandfather was an engineer, and he was contracted after World War II to go over to Spain and help design and work and engineer a pipeline. I think it was an oil pipeline across the Strait of Gibraltar. And my dad tells this story that at one point, um, my grandfather had hired, uh, unbeknownst to him, an ex-Nazi soldier who was one of Hitler's right-hand men. His name was Otto Scorzini, and he was very instrumental and responsible in rescuing Mussolini from the mountaintop. This guy was very, very feared in Nazi Germany. And as the story goes, my grandfather had Otto Scorzini into his office one day as a contractor, and my grandfather started berating him. I mean, this gentleman is tall. He's got a big scar on his face. My dad said that at the club, at the pool, they used to run around calling him Scarface and everything. And I guess my grandfather just lays into Otto for some reason or another, being late or less than stellar performance or whatever it was. Apparently, Otto just stands there, just stand, stoic, doesn't say anything, just takes this verbal beating from my grandfather, He leaves, and as the story goes, somebody came up to my grandfather later and said, do you have any idea who that is? He's like, no. He goes, that's Otto Scorzini, an ex-Nazi. Do you have any idea what that guy could do to you? My grandfather was like, oh. You know, I kind of think about the story of Jesus and Pilate. My grandfather had no idea who he was standing there talking to. Pilate? It says that he did express some concern, but in the end, he didn't respect who Jesus was. He didn't understand who was standing before him when he said, do you have any idea what authority I have? Look at verses uh, 14 and 15. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So this is what Pilate says when he presents Jesus to the masses. Behold, your king. And they 
therefore cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Classic, classic irony. We hate Caesar, but today, we've got no king but Caesar. And we know that elsewhere they challenged Pilate and said, you're no friend of Caesar if you don't do this for us. Now, verses 17 to 22. Again, John chapter 19, verses 17 to 22. And they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, uh, bearing his own cross to the place called the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. And it is written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription, many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So Pilate covers all his bases, doesn't he? And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, watch this. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. How ironic. This is definitely Pilate poking the bear. This is Pilate saying, you know what? This is your king. He has said he's your king, and I'm putting this placard up there above him. And it was done to inflame the Jews. And ironically, it is completely true. Right? Was this not completely true of Jesus as he hung there on the cross? He certainly was the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. He is the king of the universe. And while it is absolutely true, Pilate does it in irony to really get at the nerve of the Jewish leaders. And John tells us, well, we'll cover that. Isaiah 45, verses 23 to 25. You don't need to go there. I'll read this. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance to me. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who were angry at him shall be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glorify Remember the prophecy that Michael shared with us last week on Palm Sunday? Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming, righteous and victorious, lowly riding on a donkey, a colt. First Timothy says that Jesus is the Lord. They knew this. They didn't want to accept it. They knew what the prophecy said, but they had no need for God's word. So we saw a prophetic irony. 
We saw what I call a royal irony. Our third one this morning will be a spiritual or symbolic irony. And we have a handful of examples for this. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. We'll be in here for a minute. Matthew chapter 27. I have cheated and I put post-its in my Bible. I'm not that brilliant. Matthew chapter 27, verses uh, 39 and 40. Remember what Satan did in the garden? Remember the irony that he employed? Twisting God's command? Remember Eve's response? Not accurately getting God's command? Verse 39 says, And those passing by, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Did you notice what they said to Jesus? Did you notice the subtlety there? They said, you said you would destroy the temple and raise it in three days. But if we go back to Jesus' original statement in John 2, Jesus said, you destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. But when he's hanging there on the cross, the opposition at the base of the cross, looking at him, sneering, wagging their heads, shaking, going, look at this, this is pitiful. This guy said he was going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days, and he can't even get himself off the cross. That's not what he said. So, we see some irony there. John also tells us that it was later, after the resurrection, that the disciples remembered this statement and went, Oh, that's what he meant. That's how that was supposed to play out. Remember the illustration about the bedtime stories? Adam Sandler, every day, oh, that's what fire meant. The disciples, it says, recalled that when he said, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. They destroyed his body on Friday night, and on Sunday morning, he rebuilt it, and he walked out of that tomb. And they went, oh, that's the temple he's talking about. Ironic? It didn't play out like they thought it would. It didn't play out like they assumed in the flesh. They assumed that that Temple of Solomon was just going to... or Herod. It didn't. Jesus is the temple. Now, look at verse 43. 
our second example of the spiritual and the symbolic irony. Verse 43. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So what we see here is that the onlookers and the opposition were challenging God's favor upon Jesus through the lens of him not coming down, right? To them, in the flesh, through natural eyes, the Father could only love the Son if he delivered him off that cross. That was the only option in their minds, right? This is how it has to play out. If he's truly loved by God, then somehow he'll supernaturally, miraculously come down from that cross, right? But isn't the irony in this situation that God the Father was pleased in the Son for his obedience to go to the cross and finish the work that he was sent to do? The irony is that the opposers say, God cannot possibly be loving him unless he comes down. And the reality, through the divine lens, is this is my son in whom I am pleased because he became flesh and blood to make sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And to execute and to finish my plan, he must go to that cross, willingly hang there and die, which he did. So the irony is that God is very pleased in the son as he hangs there as a propitiation for your sin and my sin. Third example. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Hmm. So, as those opponents sat there at the base of that cross, as those passers-by went and shook their heads in disappointment, looking at this, this pitiful sight, You know what was steeped in their history and steeped in their psychology? Was that anybody who's hanging on a tree is cursed. And that stems from Levitical law and Deuteronomy where God said, if anybody hangs on a tree, he has been imputed a divine curse upon him. And, oh, by the way, do not let that body hang overnight. And so when the Jewish Orthodox culture, walk by Jesus, seeing him hanging on a tree, their logic, their assumption, their conclusion is that man is cursed. And what does Paul say in here in Galatians? That he became a curse so that he might remove the curse. The uncursed willingly hangs on a tree, assumes the curse of sin for you and I so that he could uncurse sin. How ironic is that? Conventional thought says he must be cursed. And yet, he's there hanging, reversing the curse of sin. Eradicating the penalty and the sting of death for you and me. And even for the people standing there saying he must be cursed. He died for those people who called him cursed. 
What a mighty, awesome Savior. All right, our last example with regards to spiritual and symbolic irony. Hebrews 7. Turn to Hebrews 7 with me. And then we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. Verse 26, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Now, Michael alluded to this on Friday night for those of us that were here. What God had commanded as a foreshadow for what Christ would ultimately come and do was the shedding of blood, right? There is no propitiation. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Even when we go back to the garden, when Adam and Eve realized their nakedness, their own personal attempt to cover up their nakedness was fig leaves, which weren't adequate. And what we see is that God shed the blood of innocent animals to cover them up appropriately. Way back at the beginning, original sin required blood. And nothing had changed. And the prescription for atonement was symbolic. Sacrifice these animals annually, weekly, whatever the prescription was. It was over and over and over. There had to be rivers of blood flowing out of that altar. And that was a foreshadow for what the Lamb of God himself would come and do. And the priestly role was extremely important. The protocol was important. It was revered. Some were actually lit up and died in the temple for not giving it the reverence that it needed. Aaron's sons, right? This was an important role. And the priests were held in very high esteem. And they offered these sacrifices regularly. And what the author of Hebrews tells us here is that Jesus, the great high priest, actually offers up himself. How ironic is that? That for centuries and centuries, human priests offered up the blood of animals over and over and over again. And they remained priests and they had to do it again and then the next year and the next year. And what we see with Jesus is he is the great high priest and he also becomes the sacrifice. What? The the priest is also the sacrifice? How ironic is that? Is that even possible? Yes. He didn't have to offer sacrifice for himself as a sinless Lamb of God. He offered sacrifice for you and me. He willingly placed himself on that altar, 
if you will. God just takes that tradition of animal sacrifice and just turns it on his head in irony, right? And what we see in Jesus on the cross is that he didn't come to abolish the law. God didn't change the rules. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and he fulfilled it himself. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father as the great high priest making intercession for you and I. You see, when... When Jesus sits there at the right hand of the Father, he says, that one's with me. That one's with me. That one's with me. That's amazing. And so today we celebrate, I'll say, God's irony of the cross. That sin entered the world in ways that were unexpected by men, right? Sin entered in ways that they didn't expect. They thought, oh, we'll be wise. We'll be like God. This fruit will be nourishing. But that's not what happened. And we can say that Adam and Eve should have known. But you know what? Each and every one of us would have made the same decision. Each and every one of us would have made the same decision that Adam and Eve met, made. You know, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So lest we pick on them too much, we would have been there. And we would have been enticed by the fruit being good for food and the idea of being like God. But God in his holiness defeated sin in ways that were unexpected. They were unforeseen through natural eyes. And the world goes, oh, that's what you meant, Jesus. That's how you ended up doing it, God. Thank you, Lord. He didn't destroy sin with this huge production. He didn't come with this huge pomp and circumstance. He came as a lowly king that required us to trust and believe. Think about Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe until I get to touch the wounds in his hands and his side. Jesus permits him and affords him the opportunity to touch. And Thomas says, well, now I believe. And Jesus says to Thomas about you and I, blessed are those who will believe without seeing and touching. He was the cornerstone that the builders rejected. How ironic. The perfect cornerstone, and yet he became a stumbling block to so many. And we'll say this in closing. God's irony also reveals that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. You may say, well, how is that ironic? Well, doesn't every other world religion and faith-based systems say, in order to achieve deity, in order to reach your God, you need to do this, this, and this. You need to have a ledger sheet, a balance sheet that has just a few more goods than bads, right? And in God's economy of grace, the irony is, it's not about anything that you can do. Because the moment it becomes about what you can do, you take credit for it, And you rob Jesus of the price he paid. And so God, in his 
Divine irony says, I'm dying for you. I'm doing it all. The extent to which you take responsibility is, yes, I accept this free gift. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for walking out of that tomb three days later so that I don't have to experience the sting of death. That I can live on with my creator for eternity. And all that is asked of me is to say yes. I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize my need for a savior. And I recognize that Jesus was the only appropriate solution for my condition. Amen?